0: Welcome to In Conversation, my name is Sarah Kitts, I'm the Artistic Director of GCTC, and I am here with Liana Brody, playwright, translator, librettist, and actor. Liana, thank you so much for taking time to speak with me this morning. Uh, We're talking about your translation of Fanny Britt's Governor General Award-winning play, Benevolence, which is on our main stage right now. Mm, Happy to be here. Thanks, Sarah. Um, so at the risk of asking you to brag about yourself (laughs) for our listeners who aren't familiar with your place in Canadian theatre can you just give us a little bit of a backstory on that
1: Uh, I guess the first thing is um, for GCTC audiences they might have seen uh, my translation of You Are Happy Mm -hmm. a few years ago and um, I'm someone who started as a as an actor in in Toronto Theatre and um, branched into playwriting worked with companies like the Blythe Festival which was run by Eric Coates, the mm-hmm. former AD of TCTC. Um, so I'm a fan of his from way back uh, and uh the Fourth Line Theatre and also Toronto companies like Cahoot's Theatre and uh, Theatre Um, I branched into opera thanks to a, a kind of international jewel in, in Toronto called Tapestry mm-hmm. uh, New Opera, which which has a really unparalleled record of training new librettist and composer duos. And um, that work took me to New Zealand and took me to England, took me kind of um, all over the place. Um, and it's, it's been a real, a real joy um, and proof that you don't need to have to know beans about piano or play anything <laughs> to, uh, to make some opera happen. Mm. Um, so, yeah, for the last 10 years, I've been in uh, uh, the Canadian West uh, in um, uh, Vancouver and then taking my MFA in Calgary and then back to Vancouver mm-hmm. and now my husband and I just moved across the country to Montreal where I've been working um, one way or another for over 25 years but I've, I've never lived there. So it's uh, that's a new adventure. Oh, and next year, um, uh, my husband, Giovanni C., who is here doing uh, Prison Dancer at NIC, he is, he and I have written a play called Salesman in China that's going to be at the Stratford Festival.
0: Yes, which is so exciting. I really want to make it down to see that.
1: Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for
0: that history. And so you are, uh, in terms of the, the theater proper, we'll, we'll leave opera aside for a moment, although that is just... So amazing that those training programs exist and that there's an understanding and a trust that dramatists can also be librettists because story is story. Mm -hmm. I I love that. Um, But within Canadian theatre, you are a playwright and also um, a remarkable translator. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what brought you to translation and uh, as a follow-up to that, what is it about the Québécois or Franco-Canadian theatrical sensibility that is so attractive to you?
1: Well, um, I started off very pragmatically, uh, like all of my actor-playwright friends. I needed a side hustle, and uh, I would—I realized, oh, I went to an immersion school, mm-hmm. and I've kept it up, and. Um, Hey, I I bet I could make some coin. Um, And I started translating everything. I translated TV Ontario, at TFO educational material. I translated dog food websites. I translated (laughs) all kinds of things. And at a certain point, I went to um, uh, Paula Dankert, then at Playwrights Workshop Montreal, and said, Paula... I think I I like this translation thing, and I also write plays, and I have a feeling I could make those two things work together, but I'm not in the Montreal ecology. I'll never meet anybody. Right. Because you need to really develop a relationship with playwrights, with companies, and she said, let me see what I can do about that. Yeah. And she got me on a track of kind of bilingual residencies and activities at Playwrights Workshop Montreal, where I met the first playwrights that I translated. And the great Linda Gaborio, who has translated many plays that have been at GCTC, um, was a real mentor to me through residencies like the Glasgow Residency and Translation in Tadesac. And she and Maureen Labonte, who I think her work has also been here, um, uh, they really uh, taught me on the job <laughs> how to take that sort of just Google Translate literalism and apply apply my sense of interpretation that I had developed as an actor to interpreting a playwright's works but as a translator I see myself as part designer mm. part uh, part interpreter so yeah all all of my backgrounds come into play and certainly the librettist thing helps because of the poetry yeah that is part and parcel of uh, Francophone aesthetic, mm-hmm. the Not poetry always. and the rhythm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, um, Eric was asking me about one possible line change, and I was, and and one he, he I went, yeah, that that's great. And the other one, I went, eh, it's too long. <laughs> Her rhythm is so specific yeah. here that even though it doesn't read as poetry, if you change it, it just gets clunky mm-hmm. or it gets. Um, rushed or uh, so yeah I mean that gets into what attracted me to um, this work is you have a longer leash in terms of poetry in terms of what Linda would call rhetorical flourishes Mm. Um, also in terms of the visuals you can just go more extreme you are untethered from some sort of naturalistic representation in fact uh, you know there's a stereotype. Still held on to in some quarters that English-Canadian people are all about showing the kitchen sink and showing the four walls and we're just slaves, enslaved by naturalism. And um, of course that hasn't been true for years. Mm -hmm. Um, But certainly the leash has been longer and it got lengthened earlier. Yeah. Yeah. In, 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 the in the francophone side uh, and it's theater. yeah and I mean I started off doing strictly Quebecois work but I've since because I've been based in Vancouver and very connected to the francophone community there I've done work by um, uh, a Francescois a, a, a Sask- um, Saskatchewan francophone a uh, Vancouver francophone and even a Belgian who now lives in in Vancouver so that's that's kind of enlarging my aesthetic repertoire as well a long answer sarah (laughs) no that's beautiful and
0: i you know i wanted i want to veer into benevolence but i'm so curious to know if this um extension and this opening of your aesthetic and rhetorical world by virtue of translating franco-canadian and quebecois plays has had an effect on your original playwriting
1: oh for sure for sure, and and for a while, I, I kept them a bit segregated, I suppose. Um, but I think uh, what happened, uh, what has happened recently, is I've kind of said no. Let let me bring all of myself to this, that. Um, I certainly you you can hear some of my voice in my translations. I I try to represent, but just as an actor will bring themselves, mm-hmm. will bring their own Hamlet, will bring their own uh, Morag and Don uh, Angel. You know th- yeah. they'll bring themselves to it, and they won't be the same as anyone else's. As a translator, yeah, there's some of my decisions, my voice. And I decided to let that be a two way street and just kind of open it up and realize that, yes, of course, of course, this rigor of language, of course, this fantastic um, precision and, and unexpected imagery, um, that's part of me as well, or I wouldn't be able to find the equivalents in English. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And so when you read Fanny Britt's Benevolence mm-hmm. in French, of mm-hmm. course, what was it about this play that made you want to take it on as a
1: translator? I think Gilles' moral questioning uh, was really familiar and attractive, mm. you know. Um, Gilles lives like someone who doesn't think too much but he thinks too much <laughs> and and, and yes. you can't hide that ultimately that will if you try to live like someone who doesn't reflect mm-hmm. it will rip you apart um, and so yeah he, he is somebody who has drives and id definitely and ego um, but he also has this uh, thoughtful reflective sensitive side that does notice the carnage he's creating yeah. he just can't help it he can't hmm. He, he's finding it hard to uh, walk away from the way he knows how to do things and, and and the kind of moral constriction that he's imposed on himself to get what he wants. And he's at a point of crisis. And that was beyond all the poetry, beyond the humor, because uh, let's not forget, she's really funny. Yeah. such um, a funny play. Yeah. You know, and beyond the humanity of these people, it, it was that quest and that the, the cool relationship that he develops with the audience yes
0: I'm so I'm so curious about that because it seems to me as if Gilles occupies this space of being both the protagonist and the chorus for his own story in that traditional sense of chorus being you know the bridge between the audience and the drama. Who yeah. can comment on the drama? Yeah. So he is the protagonist who's commenting on his own drama. Yeah. And the chorus is supposed to represent the audience in yeah. traditional Greek theater. But I guess I have questions about whether Gilles represents us or not because of the moral quandary mm-hmm. that he's so deeply inside of mm-hmm. and. Questions about how reliable he mm-hmm. is as a narrator? Oh, sure, of himself.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's where Fanny wants you to sit. Yeah. <laughs> sit in that for a bit, will you? Yes. And and I'll 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 pop in some some <clears throat> jokes, and you know there will be people doing things that are funny, um, but I also want you to sit and think about your own moral compromises that are endemic to our age. I mean, even if we want, even if we're determined to do the right thing, it's not always obvious what it is. That yeah. The the American series, The Good Place, was wonderful at bringing that up through humor that, yeah, just <laughs> try and be a good person. Just try and do the right thing. Yeah. And then five minutes later, you realize, oh, that fair trade chocolate is actually still produced by virtual slaves. Mm-hmm. They're just... Uh, you know, you you've managed to assuage your conscience, but not actually do anything. And it's that complexity. Yes. Um, and and he looks at people who he thinks live non-complicated lives, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but that's his perspective, right? Yeah. 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 So I
0: love how she, how Fanny and you and your translation don't allow us to come down in a place where there is, I think, an absolute good. Right? Because Mm -hmm. everything is so uh, interconnected and one person's good is another person's compromise.
1: Yeah, and and as you say, Gilles, we're we're clearly getting his side of things. And that's the interesting thing. He can be both protagonist and chorus because he's a lawyer and I always got the sense that he is, in a sense, trying his own case. Mm -hmm. He's pleading his own case, but he's also... The judge yes in a way and 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 he lets us be the judge as well so yeah. we are sharing in this in this inquest into what have I done yes. <laughs> what do I do yeah and what does it all mean what does it all add up to yeah
0: I feel as if he is both the defense attorney and the prosecuting yeah. attorney for his own soul
1: yeah to yes. us
0: totally definitely yeah. um, Okay, so in this way in which Gilles is estranged or alienated from his community or his family, I feel like this is a pattern that I have seen in your work. And I know this is a translation, Mm. but I just want to open up this idea a little bit. Mm. I I notice this pattern of people who are strangers inside of a community. Mm. People who are either actively... Alienated by an external force or who are internally alienating themselves. Mm-hmm. I see this in Ewart, uh, the mysterious and troubled man in Schoolhouse. <laughs> the women in the Vic are largely alienated through the harms that they've endured by society. In Biological, a play that you have in development which you generously shared with me, even though it's not public yet. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The protagonist is alienated from their family and their history Mm -hmm. and is searching across time for a community. Mm -hmm. And here in Benevolet, Gilles Jean is resistant to the community that he's offered and he alienates himself. So what is it about the stranger in the midst of community that is so compelling to you as a dramatist?
1: Oh boy, <laughs> um, that's a that's a, a great question, and it's always gratifying to a writer to see that someone is paying attention <laughs> um, to e- enough to develop sort of themes. Uh, I think I'm definitely attracted in life and in art to outsiders, and that um, probably comes a lot from various aspects of my background Mm -hmm. you know i don't think there's a community that i felt completely on the inside of um and i'm i i think that sensitizes me to the situation of people who who are marginalized in one way or another uh you know whether whether for me it was uh growing up as a a half jewish kid from the city living in the countryside in a tiny village in Ontario, or or then going to a French immersion school, right. um, and being the person who didn't speak any French, <laughs> um, and and so yeah, I've had that experience, and I think I respond to that experience in the people around me, and I think. This is a very alienating time and a very alienating world that we live in. Um, A lot of us are conscious one way or another of feeling outside. There's a lot of anger right now in our neighbor to the south by people who feel outside the centers of power. They feel frustrated and not listened to. They feel that things aren't working for them and don't resemble them. Um, Sometimes that leads to really distressing actions. But... um, yeah, I think I've always um, had a sympathy for people who don't fit in to the group, even if it's by their own actions, This with Gilles, or sometimes you're just thrust into that situation. And I think I, yeah, that's definitely um, the voice that I'm interested in exploring more than The Consummate Insider. There are other mm-hmm. people who are going to be better at writing The Consummate Insider. That's not me.
0: I, I resonate with that feeling of outsiderness Or the inside-outside Sort of bridging those two worlds Which I'm sure a lot of people feel Whether they're perceived that way or not mm-hmm. And I think that there is a kind of Clarity About a community Or a society That can come from a person Who is not solidly inside of it
1: Oh totally, yeah um, And that is such a great place to write from That's Pretty much word for word what one of Canada's great playwrights, John Morrell, the late John Mm. Morrell, wrote Waiting for the Parade and many other beloved plays. Uh, He said that to me at the Banff (laughs) Centre when I was watching all the playwrights glow bowling. (laughs) As, as playwrights are want, as to do. are want to do <laughs> Giovanni organized that actually <laughs> okay. he took the playwrights glow bowling and and i was looking at that and thinking oh this is interesting you know this is great <laughs> i'm having a great time just sitting by the rail with my drink watching this mm-hmm. i don't feel the need to be in the middle of it and that wasn't a poor little me moment at mm-hmm. all it was just oh th- that's cool and uh, John came over to me and he pretty much said what you just said, <laughs> that uh, you you feel a bit on the outside of any group, don't you? And I said, pretty much, yeah. And he said, that's a great place to write from. Yeah. When you're standing, It's he compared it to kind of standing on the outside of one of those snow globes where you can see everything that's going on inside, but you're just... I mean, Sondheim, the, the musical writer, pointed out that perspective is about taking, it, it means looking through and yes. it means taking a step back mm-hmm. so that you can see. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I absolutely think that's a, that's a great spot for a writer. And yeah. it doesn't have to be, oh, poor me, I'm not on, you know, it, no, no it's all. kind of a, you can enjoy it, but you don't feel the need to be in the middle of it. The time when I am in the middle of it is when I'm acting.
0: Yes. Yes. As you must be.
1: You have to let go of that reflective part of your brain is still there, but it takes that takes a step back Mm -hmm. and you have to just let yourself toss the ball. Mm -hmm. You can't be a spectator when you're acting.
0: Yeah. And it's not your place to be constantly considering the entire scope of the show. No. You have to be living the moment that the character is living
1: pretty much or in the francophone more presentational uh, tradition mm. you are you are presenting that moment yes you are presenting it with everything you've got yes. you're not commenting on it mm-hmm. in, a, in a way mm-hmm. yeah
0: mm-hmm. yeah you started to tiptoe into something else i want to talk about which is the r- rural urban divide Ugh. which <laughs> which which does figure prominently in some of your work yeah um and uh, I wonder if inside of that division, there is kind of a gesture toward where morals live or mm. where morals are perceived to live. Mm. Um, some of your plays portray a culturally Christian community with traditional morals that's rooted specifically in rural settings. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if if you... Um, are engaging in some kind of tension or divide of moral communities in rural settings versus moral communities in urban spaces and what those different uh, territories imaginatively or ethically have to say to us about how we can imagine a more
1: ethical world well to quote arthur miller that's deep mr paris deep deep Uh, (laughs) um yeah i think absolutely um having grown up in a in a in a very conservative very rural um christian dominated environment Mm -hmm. um that does trying to um negotiate those those tensions and those stereotypes and shibboleths that we have about each other is is really part of it and i think that those divides have only those rural urban divides have only spread and intensified and gotten weirder uh as i've gotten older because uh, when i was working on a uh, a play that eric coates actually um helped initiate about uh the wind turbine controversy in southern ontario and it, it still to this day hasn't been seen uh i did a radical revision at the u of calgary which i i really want to promote because to me it, it's not about wind turbines it's about um the birth of a rural white populist protest movement mm. in Uh, in ontario that changed the political map in ways that are not obvious to urban people but if you spend any time in the country you can see how things have shifted and they're responsible whether you like it or not for for there it's one of the big factors in in the current provincial government getting elected Mm -hmm. um and it just it really shifted that sense of allegiance and that my play Turbulence is about the fact that this, that whole controversy was not about wind power. It was about who do you trust? Right. Who do you think is on your side? And that is a central question in populist and neoconservative politics today is people managing to exploit divisions and feelings of being ignored Mm -hmm. um, to say, I am your voice. Yeah. I am the one who is going to represent you because the people in power don't represent you and I, I was told just briefly i was told an anecdote in my uh, researches for that play that kind of sums up where um the people i was speaking to because i spoke to people around three different communities three different theaters about the, the the wind turbine controversy and one of them talked about a church supper where uh, a, 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 a kind of municipal inspector came in and said um how long have these casseroles been out on this county? Yeah, it was a casserole dinner. Okay. Common fundraiser for a rural church mm-hmm. uh, organization. How long have these casseroles been out? And people went, oh, I don't know. You know, it, it's fine. It's fine. And, and she went back to her car, got a gallon of bleach, came mm-hmm. and poured it all over everyone's casseroles. Oh, God. And the disrespect and the lack of understanding of rural culture where you're not going to poison these people, you will be living with them for the rest of your life. It's like showing up at a family dinner and checking the temperature in the turkey, you know, Mm -hmm. it's It's so so ill-advised, yeah, Yeah, it's so (laughs) offensive, but that became emblematic of the kind of you're sending out your rules for your anonymous restaurant in downtown where people don't have accountability to each other. Mm -hmm. And you think you need to come in and interfere? We don't need you to do that. Mm -hmm. And so those kind of tensions um, between uh, anonymous urban culture where people are held in place by regulations versus rural culture where they're held by accountability. And I know you. I know where you park your car. Mm -hmm. I can tell when you're at the hardware store. (laughs) Like... That kind of culture. Oh, the other just briefly, the other thing I learned um, during have learned during this whole period is that the the people in rural Ontario have changed. Mm. When I was growing up, there were particular kinds of people who were there, and now between you know, rural Ontario, it could be pensioners trying to um, um, eke out more. Out of their pension check, it could be millionaires who built the Rogers Center and have an estate in Stouffville. When we talk about rural Ontario, we're talking about a whole different thing than yeah. old McDonald and the farm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the amount of distrust, the amount of people asking me, where did you go to school? Interesting. Oh yeah, where did you go to school? What it, they would ask me about, oh yeah, what's that, that, do you know what that crop is over there that we're driving? Like I would get in their pickup trucks and they mm-hmm. were ready to rumble. Yeah and there was an attitude that i'd never seen before and it was about if you are not one of us you do not understand us mm-hmm. or our priorities and therefore you don't understand why these 500 foot monstrosities are so upsetting to us right you will not understand me mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, you can't bring your set of values yeah. from an urban center to this place.
1: And actually, Fanny's new novel, Faire les Sucres, or, or Making Sugar, mm. um, which is about a, a a guy who buys a a, a maple sugar, a, a maple syrup kind of acreage, um, and and family and various other things. But he's got a bit of that. He buys this country acreage, and he is obsessed with the single power line that is across his sight lines when he mm-hmm. looks out at his back territory, which to him ruins his entire life. <laughs> but, right? And yeah. and I went, oh, I know that. Mm. That's not just a rural person preoccupation. It's people who have come out here yeah. expecting a certain postcard reality. Yes. That if that is interfered with, they will yeah. fight you tooth and nail. So, yes, tensions in our society, I think often come down to rural urban in ways that we as urban people can easily ignore
0: i think that is so true i think it's very easy in the urban centers to have little to no idea Mm -hmm. what is happening on the ground socially or culturally in rural places and rural places are not a monolith they are you know specific place to place but i think when we're talking about large social problems like policing and the fact and like i i love that you you refer to the anonymity because Mm -hmm. of the kind of communal accountability that is bred in is deeply rooted in those places in in urban settings we upload the responsibility for how we treat each other to the state and we make the state responsible Mm -hmm. and then we make the state responsible for punishing infractions now i'm Mm -hmm. not i don't mean to you know idealize the rural setting but i think when people are living with each other Mm -hmm. in that way it's not that everyone loves everyone else Mm -hmm. but there seems to me to be a greater understanding of how to live with each other that has to be constantly negotiated and yep. renegotiated yep. and in urban settings we don't have to do that and we frequently don't have the appetite to do it
1: yeah and I think you that is very much part of benevolence as well is is you get the presence of the unseen community yeah they come into the story over and over uh, and um, Jill is is the outsider, and you see that he was an outsider even when he was a little boy, mm-hmm. even when he lived there he just wasn't in sync but he he refers ironically to fresh air and real values yeah. um but he also recognizes you know what he has lost that in, in my play schoolhouse there are actually two outsiders at the center of the story Miss mm-hmm. Linton, the teenage school teacher. Mm-hmm who comes in, and you are the kind of mysterious uh, juvenile delinquent who is sent down to the farm to reform him. Yeah, And they are both outsiders, but I wanted to write a story where one person gets drawn into the center of the community, which is Miss Linton, the teacher, and the other one gets pushed steadily out. And right. both of those things are possible when you don't fit into um, what that uh, very... Homogeneous in one way or another uh, community wants from you mm-hmm. you can find yourself easily way outside and um, and it's untenable um, so you can choose it like Gilles you can choose to to go or you can get get pushed away or you can get welcomed with open arms and it's it's complicated right and it, I've always said that when you draw a circle the minute you draw a circle, some people are outside the circle and some people are inside. Mm-hmm. That's just the way it is, um, and yeah, the 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 question in benevolence is part of it is you know what does his outsiderness come from, um, and where does he belong, and yeah. he finally he finally decides mm-hmm. where he belongs. Mm-hmm.
0: One of the other things I think that is so alive. In the play Benevolence is the notion that our goodness and our usefulness is entirely relational. Mm-hmm. That it only makes sense in relation to other people mm-hmm. and that the idea of being good or being useful on our own
1: mm-hmm.
0: is not really um, a solid idea because mm-hmm. we're social creatures.
1: When I was a teenager I read um, Albert Camus, the the French philosopher, and uh, he's known for a book called The Outsider, Um, but I also read, um, recently reread one of my favorite books, which is The Plague, where he talks about our human collective, if not duties, then at least instincts. Mm -hmm. Even in a world if you think the universe is absurd and nobody's keeping score, That's fine, but unlike his other fellow existentialist-type people, um, he didn't define himself as an existentialist, but he still has a duty toward solidarity. And in fact, one of his short stories ends with a guy writing something on a a wall before he dies, and nobody can quite tell if it says solitaire, which means solitary, or solidaire, which means in solidarity. And... His kind of point is, yeah, we're but we're still human animals, and we still we owe each other something. Yeah, we just, the you know the universe, universe, we know, and we feel miserable when we don't uh, honor this um, kind of collective impulse that we have. That's part of being human, and I think. Yeah, I think what Fanny is writing about is, is that being out of balance, that kind of misery of ignoring those voices saying, dude, you know what to do. Mm-hmm. You know what to do. You know what you need to do, and it's not your mother's voice in your head or it's not anything, it's you. And the other folk are not perfect individuals. You know, none of them is a candidate for sainthood. They have <laughs> foibles and follies um, that make them interesting and human. I love, there's an outburst that the most, um, the character that Jim describes as good has a great moment where he just loses it. I love that about us. I love our complexities, and and this writer does too, and and they're so fun for actors to dig into, is that nobody knows what they're doing all the time. (laughs) This is a time full of moral conundrums, full of renegotiation of what we owe each other and i don't want to feel like um you know it's not like benevolence is sitting you in the middle of a philosophy class but i i think even you go to the barbie movie today mm-hmm. and she is grappling with her moral and ethical center um in super candy colored ways with musical numbers and it's fabulous but without 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 being mired in wallowing in misery and doubt and stuff we are all attracted to figuring out where we're at definitely and to me that's part of what theater is at. it's not just an escape mm-hmm. it's about this is where i process the world mm-hmm. frankly and and i'd love to do it with entertaining wonderful human beings who are also going to make me laugh and make me feel stuff um, but it's not where I go to run away from the world. It's where I want to, pro- and, you know, if you, if the Barbie b- movie is too much philosophy for you, you're probably not going to have a good time, <laughs> but if you can handle some intelligence along with, along with a human story, mm-hmm. then I think Fanny is exactly, um, where you're going to find a lot of, a lot of satisfaction and a lot of joy.
0: I think so too, and I appreciate how specifically theatrical it is mm-hmm. that this that the story that's being told requires a theatrical form yes. to tell it.
1: Yes. When we um, presented this translation for the first time in um, in Vancouver, the actor uh, um, Charlie Grant, who's now played Doctor Frankenstein, has dropped. Mm-hmm. He's a great leading man. But for most of rehearsal he was in agony. What the heck is going on in this play? I don't understand how this works. I feel like an idiot Hmm. just talking to empty seats. What what is going on? And then I brought my UBC creative writing students Uh um, to be their first audience, and we just finished that run, and he went, oh, there's something essential. The audience is not spectators. It's not like he's going to sit in your lap or do embarrassing audience participation, but it's just, you're, you're part of it. You are, for that night, you are the collective.
0: You are the collective. This harkens back a little bit. I just want to address something you brought up earlier because I find this so fascinating. You referred to the unseen community. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that uh goes hand in hand with the the theme of haunting Mm. that runs through the show Mm -hmm. um for reasons i'm not going to get into i've thought quite a bit personally about haunting about the idea of haunting Mm. and i sort of came up with my own definition and i wonder if you have a definition Mm. that you could share for Mm. for what haunting is either in this show or in general?
1: Goodness gracious me. It's not something that I've thought about it a lot. I certainly have experienced it. It is the presence, ultimately it's the presence of people who are not physically there, or forces that are not physically there, but it's whatever, usually whoever, you carry with you. in one form or another Mm -hmm. and the wonderful thing about theater is we can make that super concrete we can stick a costume on them and give them some lines and cast wonderful actors to play those presences but even in this play the characters and not just Shil, but all of them in one way or another are being haunted um uh three the characters who are not Gilles are being haunted by the presence of a small boy mm-hmm. who never appears on stage and you can be haunted by people who are alive by people who are dead you can be haunted can be haunted by your own actions mm-hmm. that replay haunting is a way of defying time it jumps time it mm-hmm. jumps you jumps your consciousness into things that have happened things that might happen it is a form of time travel and teleportation. Yes. And anxiety has been, uh, um, there's a, one of those internet memes about uh, worrying is praying for what you don't want. And anxiety is about that. Anxiety is about you can't live in the moment you're in because you are in a future that is going badly
0: for mm-hmm, you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: So that's haunting.
0: That's haunting. My self definition for this is uh, for haunting is a story that we are not done with or that is not done with us
1: Mm -hmm.
0: which I think is also so much about that folding of time in on itself it was happening it is happening it will continue to happen Mm -hmm.
1: yeah yeah Yeah, which is funny because theater is um above all media I would say is one where time moves inexorably forward Mm. The Francophones have this, uh, by and large, this still myth that we in the Anglophone world are addicted to linear time or right. chronological time, that we can only have things unfolding forwards. But however you manage time as a playwright or as a director, time is moving forward toward the curtain call and people finding their bus or their parking or yeah. their bike. You know, it's. we have to... We have to deal with the fact there's no pause. There's no rewind. Oh, I didn't catch that. Let me just flip the page back. No, that's not our medium. There is a time that you spend with this work of art and you don't get to choose it. Mm -hmm. And then the run
0: of the show is complete and you saw it or you didn't see it because it existed in time.
1: Yeah.
0: Mm. Liana. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. This has been such a fascinating discussion. We're so excited to have you here with this translation, to have you back since having you here in 2017. What a pleasure.
1: Pleasure's all mine. Can't wait to share this with folks because ultimately that's what it's all about. Mm
0: -hmm. Thank you. Thank you.